0: Hello everyone and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is lawlockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening and I appreciate your support. Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. I'd like to introduce Mr. Ken Belmard. Ken, thanks for coming back onto this podcast.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Ken has been practicing federal Indian law for 30 years. He's also Native American he was attorney general for the Cherokee Nation, and uh, finally,
1: the, yeah, the United Katoa Cherokees. Okay, yeah,
0: and finally, you're a former wrestler, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, former, unless something bad happens.
0: <laughs> now, are we talking like the face paint and mask type of wrestling?
1: <laughs> no, what we uh, refer to as scientific wrestling. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I've seen your LinkedIn profile, and you have some a really cool outfits. So I had to ask.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a uh, the dance regalia you, that get you can't get that that would be hard to roll around in.
0: <laughs> so, so what is that? Explain that to me.
1: Oh, the our regalia. Yes. All right. So um, the the regalia I wear is relative to this area of uh plains indians okay so the the cause osages ponkas omahas uh we're all we're all a branch of the southern sioux so over the years our regalia has uh pretty much stayed the the same we have some accoutrements that that um have been pretty consistent We have a headdress, um, which is, is called a roach for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, it's, it's generally, um, made out of deer, um, deer and, uh, horse hide and, uh, you know, with an eagle feather in the top of it. And then generally we have a, a nice ribbon shirt, uh, bandoliers, which harken back to the time of, you know, when you're, you need something to hold your bullets and, Um, our leggings, um, they're either made out of broadcloth. I I have deer hide. Um, you know, we have bells that we lash around under our knees, uh, so that make, make nice noise when we're going around the drum. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a typical regalia for, um, Indians in, in, uh, in Oklahoma, Uh, through Nebraska, kind of the the plains area,
0: and you have meetings around the fire, and and how often do you do this?
1: Well, <laughs> well, when there's not a pandemic, <laughs> we try right. to we try to do it quite a bit. Actually, uh, you know, uh, the most important part of our dances are uh, related to the drum, and and the drum is uh, without trying to be overly quaint, you know that to us that's that's really that sound coming out of there, that's God's heartbeat. And so, you know, our, our dances are related to, um, you know, having that relationship with, with the drum. And, and it's, we usually have, uh, there's, there's different, there's people have always heard about powwows, uh, powwows are kind of informal gatherings, still have a lot of protocol to them, but we have ceremonial dances as well. So, you know, usually that's around, we start in the spring and the summer, then, then generally we have some dances in the winter, but, you know, this year, uh, we just, we haven't, we haven't done that because generally, you know, people my age and the elders were the ones that attend those, so we just didn't want to get anyone sick, which, I mean, quite frankly, <laughs> it's kind of left a, a big void for us because it's, you know, it's, it's an important important part of, you know, continuing our, our traditions. So we're uh, like everyone else, we're hopeful this pandemic gets out of our way and we can, we can return to some level of normalcy.
0: Do you eat and drink together after or before?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big part of it. We have, we have some communal feasts, if you will. And, uh, you know, we have it, at our location and outside of cost city, Oklahoma, you know, individual families have little arbors that they collect at and then, you know, have, it's like a family gathering. So it's, uh, it's, it's not exactly like you see on TV,
0: <laughs> but well, that's, uh, that's still, that's, I mean, that's so awesome. Uh, more of us need to go sit by a fire, turn off our phones, Talk, dance, sing, laugh. I think the world would be a better place, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do too. And fortunately out there at our place, we have bad cell reception. So that's kind of a that's kind of a blessing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. So you live in Oklahoma, correct? Yes. Let's talk about the most pressing legal issue. Is President Trump going to pardon Joe Exotic? Aka the Tiger King.
1: Well, we all hope we all ho- are hoping for that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He a, a it's the strangest thing, but I think uh, in, in just a, a strange set of occurrences, he kind of he kind of represents Oklahoma in a lot of different right. ways. Some some not so good, but uh, you know, I I just think he's he's. uh He's just this unbelievable character, and I think most of us think, "Yeah, that could only happen in Oklahoma." <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anything goes in Oklahoma, right?
1: Well, I tell you what, it's uh, you, you always want to see the big cats, so
0: yeah. Well, so how are the uh, COVID restrictions in Oklahoma? Can you um, can you go to a gym, a bar, outdoor dining, indoor dining? What are the current restrictions there right now?
1: Well, you know, we're, we're, um, we're pretty red state here. So, uh, the restrictions are kind of hit and miss the, um, in Norman, Oklahoma, Oklahoma city and Tulsa, the restrictions are, um, depending on who you ask, pretty reasonable. You know, they're requiring people to mask up, but, um, I don't know how heavily it's enforced. And uh, I do know that the, the governor did uh, probably two weeks ago required um, no alcohol sales after 11 and you couldn't, um, you couldn't uh, get, get a drink after 11. So I guess, you know, here in Oklahoma, the COVID gets kind of sleepy around 11 and right. uh, well that
0: that's what they're saying out here about Governor Newsom's curfew. Uh there's no non-essential travel from I think it's 11 p.m. or maybe it's 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. and it's it's pretty strange because I don't think covid is spread during that time frame but
1: yeah. Well, yeah. The, you know the interesting thing and and this horrified me yesterday. Uh I had to go to the store which I don't even like in the best circumstances. So I masked up, went to my local store. 60% of the people in that store did not not have masks on.
0: Oh wow. That's <laughs> yeah. That's unfortunate. It's a simple thing to do, right?
1: Yeah, and and you know, um but it's it's become a symbol of freedom in in Oklahoma. It's you know, I I, I was having this conversation earlier that the argument pretty much goes, well, they're going to make us wear a mask today and, and uh, it, the next thing they're going to make us do is get in boxcars. So, you know, there's just this idea that uh, somehow wearing a mask is some affront to your constitutional rights. So, uh, you know, it's it's been a real struggle. Our, our numbers have been just increasing yeah you know after the thanksgiving time uh you know where some people had had real small gatherings and kind of stayed in their bubble uh, a lot of people didn't do that so we're we're just now suffering the effects of that so you know our hospitals are full people are sick and dying
0: and how is the native american community coping with this right now
1: you know it in in Oklahoma it's the fortunately it's not like out at Navajo where you know their infection rates and death rates are really high. Ours are pretty much the same as the the general population, so you know we we don't uh, have the benefit of living living by ourselves out on the res anymore, so we're assimilated into into our community. So our, our numbers are like anyone else's, but yeah, we, I think, I don't think there's a person around here that hasn't known somebody or been related to somebody that's actually, you know, um, died from, from COVID, but you know, it just, there's just a sense that it's, it's, it's just the flu.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, hopefully this is over soon because um, numbers are increasing and it's probably going to get worse in the next month or two. And hopefully after that, things calm down and we, we get back to some sort of normal,
1: right? Well, that'll be interesting with the vaccinations. Uh, you know, that's, that's a, another interesting issue is, you know, um, particularly again in red states, will, will people be, be ready to just line up and get popped? and you know i, I know we we've had this conversation around our tribe it's uh you know we're every time they want to vaccinate us we think about getting blankets with smallpox on them so yeah uh, it's always right it's it's always a little different for us on that so it'll it'll be That's understandable yeah yeah it'll be interesting so The last time we spoke, we
0: spoke about this treaty between Native Americans and the federal government. This was impacting Native Americans in Oklahoma, and this treaty went back to the 1860s, but wasn't really enforced until this recent Supreme Court case um, stating that Native Americans are not subject to state or federal jurisdiction for misdemeanors or minor offenses, but can only be prosecuted by the federal government for uh, felony or major crimes. Is that a fair overview of our first conversation?
1: Yes, I, I think we, we were talking about the uh, Supreme Court case and in, in what we call McGirt. And the idea being that uh, the Creeks, the, the Creek Nation was actually, um, you know, Found in that case to still maintain a reservation, and due to the status of Indians on their reservation, state courts uh, don't don't have criminal jurisdiction over Indians. So either tribal court or if it's a major crime, uh, that's in the federal jurisdiction.
0: So I have a follow up question:
1: Who makes that preliminary
0: decision on the charge between? A misdemeanor or a felony. Is it the tribal courts or the state or federal courts?
1: Well, basically what happens is you know the, a crime is committed in in Oklahoma that just happens to be a former reservation that's recognized. and the person, the person, it, it's generally the state court, right? Because uh, everyone that that's that's mainly where jurisdiction lies. So, for example, a fellow like me who looks like I look, I, I get pulled over for, um, you know, several crimes I've committed around Tulsa. They would, uh, they probably aren't going to ask me if I'm, if I'm a card-carrying Indian, and they're going to take me to state pokey and give me state charges, and then uh, I'm going to hire some enterprising attorney that's going to say, hey, this dude's Native American, and State court doesn't have any jurisdiction over them, so it's it, it's usually going to emanate from from the 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 appeals and the actual issues that we're talking about that flow from this case. They're, they're going to emanate from from the um, from the state courts. Got federal it. court federal court jurisdiction is pretty easy because um, you know or was because generally. Uh, Law enforcement know, knew if they were on an Indian allotment, or, or you know, it'd be similar if, um, if you're in a federal enclave, a military base, you know, you know, you're you, everyone knows where you're at, and tribal court because we know what our jurisdictional parameters are, and where our tribal uh, cops can go and can't go, you know, their their inquiry is going to pr- be pretty easy because. You know, if they pull me over, I got a tribal tag on my car, so that's that's pretty good oh, <laughs> indication wow. of you know that that I'm a tribal member. And and interestingly, since the last time we talked, and you know all the fear that had arisen uh, that there was going to be all this lawlessness and there was not going to be any way to deal with the jurisdictional issues, that's pretty much uh, been tamped down. Uh, the bigger tribes have actually uh, put money into enhancing um, not only their own court systems, but you know, working with the with the federal court system. You know, fortunately, in um, in nor- in the, in the northern district of Oklahoma, the U.S. attorney over there is actually a member of one of the five civilized tribes. So, you know, it 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 hasn't been it hasn't been the dramatic. Um, thing that the, uh, that the that the state of Oklahoma and that the city of Tulsa had uh, pled in, in their briefs.
0: Well, good. So I want to talk to you about uh, Native American history today. Uh, before we get into it, I'm curious as to, you know, how do you balance being a patriotic American and uh, native american at the same time you know considering everything the federal government has done to your people
1: yeah it's 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 an interesting balance but i i think that um you know when when you think about protecting your home and and being part of a community that that community you know it it's small then it's bigger then it's bigger then it's bigger and you know people like me we look at our local universities where we go to do sports and so you you still have that sense of community and that sense of home and you know I, this may be a little a little out there but you know where where we live where we come from and what it's called now as being part of the this thing called the United States, to us, that may be a transitory deal. You know, we've we've been here a lot longer than the United States has been. We plan on being here longer than, and you know, particularly after the recent events with the United States lifespan may be. So, you know, it's where we live. It's, it's the place we come from and just happens to be encapsulated in this federal governing system that only is United States now. So it's not a, it's not a big leap.
0: Well, I'm still optimistic about our future. Um, the constitution, it's not perfect, but it's the best we got. Um, and especially if you look at other countries around the world, I studied international law for, uh, seven years and you look at free speech, rights, You look at uh, freedom of movement, individual liberties, Um, you know, again, it's not perfect, but, uh, it's been keeping us together for a long time. What did, what does Thomas Hobbes say? The state of nature is nasty, brutish, and short. (laughs) So it's been doing something right for, for all this time. Right.
1: You know, and, and I, I've had some conversations with, um, with people younger than me and they've, they've expressed this optimism. And so that, that's been a, a, a nice thing to see. I, I think being an older fellow and and I, I guess just seeing how significantly things and attitudes have, have changed uh, just in, you know, one guy's my lifetime, I guess. Um, you know, I've, I've never seen a, a country that was so evenly divided. I mean, even if you look at 1968, which was probably you know, a very interesting period of time, it, there was a division, but the division was unequal. There there were, there wasn't 50% against 50%. You know, it was a 10% of people against 90% of people. And, you know, it just seems to me that when you have a situation where 50% of the people are on the other side of the rope, it's, it, 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 lends itself to some, uh, a lot of, a lot of hard, hard tug in there. So, you know, I, I think if we get, if we get past, if the Supreme Court and, in their wisdom, um, you know, can, can, can actually, um, come up with some, some way of, you know, following the law, but, but also, um, not creating a, a an ongoing division. I think we'll be we'll be very lucky. But you know that this fifty fifty percent versus fifty percent thing is is pretty pretty frightening to me. But you know I've been I've been told that um I talk about the sky falling a lot. But
0: uh <laughs> well it is hard to remain optimistic but uh you know, uh, my wife and I, we just celebrated our son's first birthday. So being a dad, it kind of changes your perspective. And I think I want to feel more optimistic, even though when you turn on the news, it's pretty disheartening at times.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I think that, I think that does make a difference too. When, when you have, when you have younger children and you're, you're still in that protective mode and as opposed to a guy like my age where my kids are grown and it's like, they're gonna have to figure it out. <laughs> so. Well, let's um, let's talk
0: about Andrew Jackson and how he became the most hated president among Native Americans. I'm sure that's a fair statement, right?
1: I, I think as far as all the all the people I know, yeah, that's more than fair. So
0: it really goes back to 1838 uh, with Martin Van Buren, who was. Andrew Jackson's vice president, um, he was his hand-picked successor, and he started the Trail of Tears. Is that right?
1: Well, a- actually, one of the, the, the Indian Removal Act, it was in, was in uh, 1830, and we had talked a little bit last time about the, uh, what we refer to in Indian law as the Marshall Trilogy which were the three cases that uh, basically dealt with the idea of what what were um, Indians, you know, what were Indian nations, and you know, basically in those cases, the um, the elements of sovereignty as tribes being um, separate nations, you know, in the Constitution, uh, we're referred to. Um, differently than than states or foreign nations in, in the same clause. So that idea that the ideas that came out of the Marshall trilogy were, um, you know, that we had some right of occupancy to our land. Uh, but you know, the Indian Removal Act in, in um, 1830 just basically, you know, it's like uh, Jackson said, you know, Justice Marshall has made his decision now let him enforce it. <laughs> so you know it was just a, uh, you know, from a constitutional point of view, um, it, Jackson. Jackson realized he had, uh, as president, he had he had more guns than uh, than the Supreme Court did, and you know I think uh, I touched on a little bit the they there was a minor gold rush in in the southeastern United States, and so avarice whites were interested in you know land speculation and so there just wasn't any any place for those tribes and as as we were talking earlier um i had been the attorney general for the united katoa band of cherokee indians who were also known as the early settlers and they actually um, moved to oklahoma before the indian removal act because they knew what was getting ready to happen to them. And so when the Indian Removal Act um was actually put into effect and the military was literally marching tribes, you know, out of the their aboriginal areas, the the Cherokees that had um had didn't come with that first migration they were forcibly removed. That was the John Ross Cherokees. And that's where um, the idea of the Trail of Tears came from. And, you know, every tribe had a Trail of Tears. Every tribe, except the ones that, um, in the Southwest that maintained uh, their land sites, um, you know, they were removed from somewhere. And there were deprivations and and deaths and all that. It's just, you know, the the Cherokees, for whatever reason, it just became more of um, an element of a popular um, popular understanding, and and people wrote about it. But and I think it was because uh, the Cherokees, quite frankly, were probably the most um, as a as a nation in the 1830s, as an Indian nation, they they were the most prosperous group. I mean, a lot of those, the John Rosses and people of his caliber, they they were plantation owners, and and they were people they were people of means. So, you know, it, that was a that was a big deal when when those people left, and they they were able to they were able to you know maintain. I guess the um the information about that in popular culture not not just within their own tribe.
0: And the Trail of Tears for the Cherokee, that went from modern-day Georgia to Oklahoma, is that correct?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so just walk me through some of the basics with the Trail of Tears. Um it was the U S government and, and did they have camps along the way or did they provide any type of food or how did that work?
1: They, they provided um, (laughs) rudimentary uh, food, rudimentary shelter, but basically it was uh, it it was just, you know, grab all you can carry and, and let's start, we're going to, we're going to march you to this new place. So it, it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it was, it was basically a forced march. It wasn't, you know, we're going to put you in, in nice covered wagons and right. make sure you get three squares a day. It, it was, it was a kind of, you know, um, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, a but town death march or something It, you know, there wasn't, I guess a whole lot of thought or um, anticipation of, how these people were going to be cared for uh, along the way.
0: There was a lot of disease and famine and a lot of people died, right?
1: Oh, that's yes. Yes, it is. And, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of different uh, numbers related to that in which I don't have the top of off the top of my head. But if, if I was looking for those numbers, I'd sure ask, I'd sure ask the Cherokees before I asked the United States, you know, yeah. how many of right. those were. And and you know, interestingly, and, and when we were talking about doing this little deal about uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, you know, it, it, it occurred to me that the period of time from the, the United States Constitution to the Indian Removal Act was very it was a very short period of time. It was it was four years. And you know, and and kind of refreshing my memory about all this you know a lot of the a lot of the players that uh, were important to the, the foundation of the United States uh, these guys were still around you know when Andrew Jackson was getting elected to the Senate and you know he actually um, it, he ran for president in, in 1824 and and won the popular vote. But uh, he didn't win the electoral vote, and so it went to the House and he, and he lost. So, you know, he came back again in, in 28 and was elected and, and re-elected in, in 32. And he was the reason the Whig Party came to prominence because they were objecting to the, not just the Indian removal, but, you know, uh, Andrew Jackson was pro-slavery, he had held slaves. And, you know, there was this whole deal with states' rights and with with federalism. And, you you know, you had the Nullification Party, those guys out of South Carolina that believed that, uh, you know, if the federal government passed a law that that the state didn't like, they could override it. (laughs) So, you know, there was that division, that division that um, lent itself to the Civil War actually was always there at the start of the formation of our country. And, you know, it just, it just really didn't rear its head until, you know, Lincoln got elected. And then it's like, yeah. yeah. And then the abolitionists, you know, that, that whole issue, it just, it, it just set it, set that all off. And, you know, the, the American Indians were just, Um, They were just a casualty of this whole idea of of manifest destiny and, you know, how the country was how the country was expanding. And, you know, if you think about Jackson getting elected in 28 and, you know, just in in, uh, the Louisiana Purchase was just a few years before that. War of 1812. So it, it was a very it was a very young country with. Uh, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different problems. And, you know, one thing that um, I recall was, I don't think it was until the 18, maybe almost 1840s, maybe, maybe 1832, where um, every white man could vote. I mean, there, there used to be some, uh, in some states, you had to be a landowner to vote. So there wasn't universal white man suffrage till about 1832 in in the United States. So that that period of time was, you know, it it was a pretty rough, rough and tumble time. And, you know, Jackson was seen as uh, a man of the people. And in response, if you look at the electoral map from from his elections, you know, it's 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 pretty indicative of of some of the things that really haven't changed in in our modern yeah. world.
0: No, it's it's uh rural life versus city life.
1: Yeah, really. A lot of it, it can be
0: boiled down to that if you look at the uh you look at how the votes are cast.
1: Yeah. So this whole idea of, you know, Jackson, he was against the the national, you know, the national bank and you know, these these That's type right. of things that made him a uh, more of a, a man of the people and, and, uh, you know, his, interestingly enough, he, he throughout his career, he wasn't one that really followed much protocol or, or the law, you know, when, when he invaded Florida, I think that was in eighteen eighteen uh, with, with, <laughs> because he wanted to ended up being the governor of, of Florida. So, uh, yeah, he was, he, he was pretty much of a fellow that did it his own way.
0: He um, is one of the most fascinating presidents to me. I mean, he, he was a complete nut job and, and I have some evidence for that. <laughs> but um, I mean, he was also quite impressive in a lot of ways. He was obviously president. Um, he was a judge. He studied law. He was a member of Congress and he was a general and um, one of my favorite stories about Andrew Jackson is, you know, his his biggest victory was the Battle of New Orleans, right? And um, the funny thing about that is um, the U- the U.S. and British had already signed a peace treaty, but the news spread so slow that this battle still went on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like it's crazy. Like you think about now with social media and how fast things news travels like it's hard to believe that a a major (laughs) battle went on when a peace treaty was already signed
1: yeah you know it's that is uh, that is something that i think we we often overlook when we study those things it's like how in the heck could that happen and and um even even those elections back then they would start in about october and start winding up and the I think they actually had the inaugurations in March. So, you know, it it was, it was just a whole different world. And, you know, the, how the Supreme Court was, I guess, finding, finding out, you know, uh, I guess, finding its feet. And, you know, a bunch of bunch of issues. You know, one thing that that um i was interested in because of what, what's happened the last couple of days i was looking at the 10th and 11th amendments and and uh, what the what you know the framers and then then subsequently the um the next group of people making making our our laws um had to say about the interaction between the states and the federal government which it's obviously going to come into play here probably in the next couple of days but you know what uh, when you think about it we're really a uh, uh, as as a nation we're really not that old i mean as a nation we may be old but as a group of contiguous people you know we're we're not that old and i always wonder you know what the lifespan of a democracy is supposed to be
0: <laughs> yeah Another interesting story about Jackson is he got in a duel one time uh, with this young man who was a real sharpshooter. And so Jackson's strategy was he was going to go there. He's just going to take the first shot. Hopefully it doesn't kill him. And he's (laughs) going to make the guy come back, stand up, and he's going to get his shot. And so what happened was, sure enough, the guy, I think his name was Dickerson. They, they call the duel, you know, they do the countdown. He shoots Jackson in the chest. Jackson just takes it like a man, <laughs> calls the guy back to the line, shoots and kills him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it just shows how how nutty this guy was. Um, and then he, he was involved in another duel where he's like running through the streets of Nashville, um, shooting at people. But one of the other stories that fascinates me about Jackson is uh, this guy, Richard Lawrence, uh, who was just a mentally ill person, uh, attempted to assassinate Jackson and his gun misfired and Jackson just beat him with his cane.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the gun misfired twice. Yes, that's right. It was raining raining outside and it misfired twice. How lucky is that?
0: (laughs) I know. But uh, yeah, I, I guess the thing that fascinates me about uh, the relationship that, you know, Andrew Jackson has with the Native Americans um, is that, you know, I, I, feel, I feel like it lets some of the other presidents off the hook. Like, for example, our great President Lincoln, um, he served in the Black Hawk War, which fought against, I think it was a couple different tribes in that war, correct?
1: Oh, yeah, there, was, there were several affiliated tribes. I think most of them were Algonquin tribes. Okay. And then under
0: Lincoln's presidency in 1862, there was the Sioux or the Dakota uprising. And that was the largest mass hanging, um, largest mass execution in U.S. history with 38 uh, Dakota or Sioux men getting hung. And, And so it just is strange to me that, you know, I wonder why historians don't talk a lot about, uh, you know, President Lincoln and and other presidents' relationships with Native American and the and the cruel things they did as well.
1: Well, I don't think any of those early politicians would have ever ascended to the presidency if they would have been soft on Indians. I mean, the the whole the whole issue was you had an expanding country like like any country uh look, people look speculating for land, um the fight for natural resources. And quite frankly, um the the attitude that um I think most people of any prominence had were that um that that Indians, Native Americans weren't weren't really people, if if you will. And so it was I, I think that attitude was just Kind of pervasive that they were just, uh, you know, this, this group, this in, these entities that that had some affiliations with each other that the whites didn't want to understand, and they were they were on good land, and it's like you know they got they got to go. So I I really think it, that that I think that happens a lot with any dominant society in any country, you know, there's, you can, you can go anywhere in the world and there's quote unquote ethnic tension. And that ethnic tension is pretty much dictated by the, the ruling elites, right? So, uh, you know, whoever the ruling elites pick out to uh, be the losers in a society that's, that's pretty much how how it goes down. So, I, I do think it is. It's pretty interesting. I know I uh, I taught Oklahoma history when I pre law, um, and um, the the history book that that was assigned to us um, for Oklahoma history was um, not not very good. I guess at, at telling. Telling the real story, and and then there was a period of time uh, around the time I was teaching in the early early 80s. Uh, there was actually a Angie DeBoe book that they started letting us teach from, which which really was um, what's that fellow named Zen? You know, oh, the, Howard
0: Howard Zen, the People's History of the United States. Yeah,
1: yeah. So Angie DeBoe kind of did a Howard Zen for the Indians in Oklahoma that you know we actually got to teach from and it and but that that's the history books now in Oklahoma uh you know they've been pretty sanitized from 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 a lot of that which I think lends itself to you know the the whole public education system in in the United States and I think that's we're kind of seeing some some of the uh logical, uh, expressions of what happens when your public education system fails. But, you know, we, we, I think people now, you, you know, I can't imagine having this kind of discussion with, with someone, um, outside of my immediate circle in, in 1990, because it was just, you know, it just wasn't a thing. In fact, when I told, when, uh, I came back to my hometown and, was practicing Indian law and bumped into people and they say, what kind of law you practice? And I tell them Indian law, they look at me like I was crazy. So, you know, there has been this, this, um, you know, through popular culture, culture revisionist history, which all history is revisionist, I would argue, but you know, there, there have been some elements that um, have lend itself to the idea that some of the things we learned or didn't learn were, were just as valid. I mean, I, I was watching something yesterday, and and it was on one of the streaming channels, and, and they were basically talking about the Vikings and how the Vikings discovered America, and, and you know, forget about that Columbus guy. That was all that, that was all fake news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you know, depending on the time that you were born. And the history you were taught, you know, if you were born to just 10 years later, it's gonna to be totally different. And so how, how does a society deal, deal with that? I mean, we had the, the biggest race riots in the United States of America happen in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. And they literally massacred a whole um, community, of, of black people, and this community was, was um, you know these it, it wasn't it wasn't a slum, I mean these people a lot of them were freedmen, you know people that had had come come with the civilized tribes who were slave owners, and they were descendants of freedmen, and and they had picture shows, they had grocery stores, you know they were a modern society and. And, you know, in a blink of an eye, because of some racial thing, they, they, there was a race riot and they, they were wiped out. So, you know, I never, no one, my, my Oklahoma history teacher never broached that with us. So. Wow.
0: Huh.
1: And, you know, they're right now they're having uh, excavations in that area to, you know, try to try to get that story out.
0: Interesting. Well, it's important to understand Native American history. I think um, 26 states are named after tribes.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, it's it's crazy to me. Um, we, we don't do a good job of, well, we don't do a good job of teaching history in general um, to our students or a basic principles about the U S government and and how it works and the three branches. I just interviewed a professor, constitutional law professor yesterday, and I forget the statistics she used, but I I think it was like 40% of Americans um, can't name the three branches of government. So Mm. it's not a good sign, Ken.
1: Yeah. Let me, let me, um, let me give you my hypothesis on why that's the case. So, you know, It might be a self indictment to some extent, but so when I was teaching, when I was teaching history, I was a history and civics teacher and I'm a, I'm a history nut, but I was also a coach. So I know most of my coaching peers at the time, for whatever reason, they, they stuck them teaching history and I was a history major. A lot of them weren't. And and so I I think there was a generation, at least in Oklahoma, of kids who might have been taught history or civics or not taught history or civics because you know the school system had determined that it was more important to employ a coach than it was to employ a history teacher. So you you stuck a stuck your coach teaching history, which I was always offended by because about the second week of class, these kids would come up to me and they'd say, coach, I thought this class was supposed to be easy. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, nope, it's not going to be, you're going to learn something in here. But, you know, you, in in my case, I just saw, I, I saw that for the four years I taught. It was just horrifying to me.
0: Well, let's end on a brighter note. Um, I have a question. Your, your fire dance ceremonies, are they uh, just for your tribe or can anyone show up?
1: Okay. So, so actually, okay, our, we call them dances. The dances, uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, we have them. And, and let me kind of give you an idea of what they look like. So, so we will have a drum in, in the center of the arena. There'll be a drum and there'll be, of course, the drummers around. Sometimes, you know, people bring out, there'll be other drums or it could be two or three drums. And then we, we actually, as we dance, we, we rotate around the drums. So, so we, we, we don't have us, we don't, uh, we don't have a central fire or anything. So, um, with our tribe, we dance we dance counterclockwise. Where some tribes dance clock clockwise, and the reason we dance that way is because it our heart's closer to the drum, which is just one of our cultural idiosyncrasies. But but generally, our our dances are are open to the public. Cool. And so, I would, I would certainly. Hopefully, next summer, you can you can come out and, and watch and and uh, even in our powwow uh, situation, there are opportunities. We have social dances, so you know um, anyone can participate. Uh, now, in our cer- our ceremonials, that's that's a that's a different thing. But for the most part, you can watch them. Um, you know, there's this whole thing about, uh, powwow etiquette, not taking pictures unless you ask people and, you know, that, that type of thing. Sure. But yeah, but, uh, that's a, that's a long, long answer to say, yes, uh, people, people can come and come and watch.
0: Well, what a great life experience. Uh, when COVID is over, you might see me at one of those.
1: Well, you're certain you're certainly invited. And, you know, I always, uh, one one thing I wanted to mention about this whole Andrew Jackson thing is that um, w- probably one of the most ironic things I ever saw was um, our, our President Trump, he, he was given some uh, awards to some Navajo code talkers in, you know, that room, I don't know what that room's called.
0: Was that for? Uh, were they World War
1: II veterans? Yeah, they were World oh, wow. War II guys, and so you know that's a whole. There's a whole another deal the code, the co talkers, but um, in the background was that portrait of Andrew. Oh no!
0: Jackson.
1: And and I saw at one point where one of those oh, gosh, man who's in his nineties. You know oh. the look on his face when he turned around and and saw Andrew Jackson hanging behind him it, it was it was not good and I think I mentioned this earlier I you know there's and I'm getting to this point now where if I can get two 10s instead of a 20 I'll do it every time <laughs> so.
0: wow well I always enjoy talking with you Ken I hope you stay safe have a nice holiday season and uh, I think we'll have a better new year I think we'll have a, a better year next year than we did this year right
1: I'm looking forward to it. And thank you very much. Always, always a pleasure to chat with you.
0: Take care, Ken. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only not those of their respective employers all liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed the content on this posting is provided as is no representations are made that the content is error-free